You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. Defense mode. We're survivors. Like, help with them. In our head, but they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLF. I'm Alicia, and I'm Lizette. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be joined by Margaret Martin, our nutrition educator, and she'll be giving us some feedback, some advice, and some information about nutrition during your cancer journey. Margaret, for those who are not familiar with you, can you give us a little about your background and what piqued your interest in nutrition? Yes, I'll be glad to. Hello, Alicia and Lizette. I'm a registered dietitian. I went to undergraduate school at the University of Alabama. Roll Tide, and then worked several years and then got my master's degree at the University of Tennessee. I started out in public health education and then moved to hospital clinical dietetics. There I got to meet some great oncology patients and also I'm a certified diabetes educator. So diabetes and oncology go hand in hand sometimes. Then my family experienced or still is experiencing a, a long journey with lung cancer. So I was motivated to tailor my practice more to oncology. So here I am now. Ah. When people hear nutritionist, nutrition educator, they hear dietitian, what's the differences between the three? That's a great question. A registered dietitian nutritionist has met certain educational and clinical requirements. Most registered dietitians have uh, five to six years of college education. They also have a one-year clinical internship where they work supervised in hospitals, health clinics, and in community settings. Certain states require dietitian nutritionists to be licensed or certified. So beyond the registered dietitian status, you can also be licensed or certified. Not all dietitians or nutritionists are registered or licensed or certified. So the best nutrition experts, in my opinion, are registered dietitian nutritionists because they have the clinical and educational background. Nutrition educator is someone who focuses on sharing information tailored for the individual patient or caregiver that they could use in, in their journey with cancer or blood cancers. We're a little less clinical, more about education, putting it into small steps so they can actually implement it at home. And what makes it different working with cancer patients or caregivers of cancer patients than someone else that does not have a cancer diagnosis? 
Well, people with cancer diagnoses, I feel, have more challenges than the average person without cancer. We know cancer can affect how your body digests food, your drive for food, or ability to eat. So that becomes more challenging. When someone is diagnosed with cancer and then they now kind of have to take everything into consideration, are there any immediate next steps when it comes to nutrition? Well, I think the first few steps are to know what your nutritional status is. Usually your oncology team will do a physical exam, which is, you know, your body evaluation, and they'll also do laboratory studies and imaging studies. And from that, they may find challenges from your, uh, if you have a tumor that's interrupting your digestion or some low values in your blood counts, then the first step would be to try to correct that through nutrition and or medical assistance. So that would be the first step. Then learning about that patient and their family, their culture about food would help the registered dietitian be able to offer advice that could be tailored for that family and caregiver. Now, a lot of times a doctor will say, yes, you have cancer, and then they'll send you for more testing, and they might send you to other members of the treatment team, a nurse for information, sometimes a social worker. I don't always see doctors sending people right away to a dietitian or a nutritionist. Has that been your experience? Yes. I've observed that. 80% of patients with cancer get their treatment in a cancer, freestanding cancer center, so they may not have a dietitian on staff. If they are an accredited center, they have to have access to a registered dietitian for their patients. The good news is each center and hospital has a nutrition screening process, just like you would for other areas of, of health. So when you're screened by the medical staff or nursing staff, you get a score. If you have a high score, then you're usually uh, referred to a registered dietitian. So that's the good news. There's so much information about what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat. What information would you give to someone who's trying to kind of navigate all the different, you know, nutritional information that's out there? Well, that's a challenging question. My philosophy is that all foods fit into, you know, a healthy plan and try to get your information from a nutrition professional because there is a lot of information out there on the Internet and websites and family members who love to share. But I like to encourage people to get their nutrition from foods and beverages, try to eat from all the food groups if they're able to tolerate those, and use a variety of foods each week. That sounds like a healthy meal plan for most people. And um, so that's where I would suggest people start. If they have some food allergies or intolerances, often milk is or lactose is something people have trouble digesting as they get into treatments, then they might need to find a milk substitute like soy, almond, or cashew milk. So a lot of people, when they come to speak to you, And you can actually explain how you are contacted by patients. But at that point, have patients already started their own diets that they've gotten either from a family member or from 
the internet. I know that when patients contact us here at LLS and speak to an information specialist, a lot of times they say, well, I, I was diagnosed with cancer, so now I can't have sugar because sugar is going to feed my cancer and I'm going to get worse. Do you have a lot of people talking to you about different things that they have already stopped having because they feel that they shouldn't have this type of food or this type of diet? Yes. Um, when patients are referred to me or their caregivers, they sometimes have all already modified their food habits or, or embraced a diet they heard about on the Internet or at the grocery store or a friend. A lot of patients at time of diagnosis with cancers have already lost 10 to 30 percent of their body weight due to the cancer process or um, inability to eat. So that puts them behind nutritionally. So we get a lot of people then who go the extra step and start avoiding different types of foods like sugar is a big one. Sometimes people go all organic or don't have any foods that aren't organic or only use vegetables or become a vegetarian. These are things that you really want to discuss with your medical team before you make any changes in your food habits or go on a special diet. You may not be able to, for instance, absorb a lot of vegetables and fruits, the fibers in those, depending on the type of cancer you have or treatment. So if that's your sole source of nutrition, you can see how that might be a problem if you're not uh, able to digest those. But there are a lot of nutritional suggestions and so-called miracles out there. And uh, we try to encourage people to take those with a grain of salt because we know food can help you improve your response to treatment. Food can help you improve your immune status, you know, if you have compromised immune status. Food can help you maintain a healthy weight during treatment, but no one food is going to cure your cancer. Are there any common questions that you hear patients ask you when they request a consult with you? Some of the common questions I get from patients and their families are, what kind of diet should I be on? I want to be on the leukemia diet or I want to be on the XYZ diet. That's a common question. What foods should I not eat and how much should I weigh? How much weight can I lose now that I have cancer? I've been trying to lose weight all my life and finally I'm losing weight, which we don't recommend that someone lose weight during treatment. We like them to keep a healthy weight unless their oncology team is monitoring them to lose slowly like one or two pounds a month. I get the sugar question quite a bit. I've eliminated sugar because that feeds cancer. Well, sugar feeding cancer is a little bit of a misconstrue of the research about sugar and cell growth. All of our cells use sugar for energy. Even the good cells and the bad cells use sugar. But sugar by itself doesn't cause your cancer to be worse or more advanced than it is when you're diagnosed. Now, that being said, if a patient uses a large amount of sweetened foods that pushes out their appetite for fruits, lean proteins, and vegetables, then that is that can be an issue because you're missing out on the nutrients. Those brightly colored fruits and vegetables carry and protein and minerals that the meat carries. But sugar does not have to be eliminated across the board. I like people to try to choose 
foods from all the food groups and not eliminate any one of the food groups like grains or I have had people who eliminate all fat, dietary fat, and that's not suggested either. Fat carries a lot of vitamins and flavors in our body. Uh, The flavors are in the food. And then once in the body, fat helps store four of our major vitamins, vitamins A, D, E, and K. If we're not getting enough dietary fat in our meals, our body often has a response to release extra fat and cholesterol from our liver. So it's defeating the purpose if you try to be fat-free, and it's not healthy either. And again, how do patients speak with you? How can someone get a referral to speak with you? Patients and their caregivers can contact the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society Information Resource Center. Uh, that's one way. We also have a referral form on our website, lls.org, or you can refer yourself by calling us. So it doesn't have to be a physician referring you. You can refer yourself, or if you're a caregiver, you can call us or email us and get an appointment set up. The appointment for nutrition consultation is about 30 minutes or, or so. It's telephonic, and I also like to maybe email you some information as well if you have an email address. Do different types of fat affect cancer risk and survival? Different types of fat do have different effects on the body. Saturated fat from meats and meat products can age our arteries, which make them less supple. And if our arteries aren't circulating your medication and your nutrients around your body, in that way it can affect possibly, you know, some of your outcomes because you're, you're having poor circulation. Saturated fat above a certain level ages us, so we don't want to, you know, have premature aging. We want to be clear in our thoughts and being able to move, have physical activity every day, and have great circulation through our heart, lungs, brain, and extremities. So saturated fat, I think, in moderation is okay, but uh, sometimes we go to excess if we go to a meat-only type meal plan. I have talked to people who eliminated a lot of the carbs and just are eating meat and fat. So that's not for everyone, especially if you're, say, a heart patient or someone that already has compromised circulation. Now, what are some of the things that people should know before treatment or during treatment? Usually a lot of cancer patients will have appetite changes. If your appetite is not hearty or it's not what it used to be, then I like to encourage people to have, you know, a different mindset about eating. Perhaps you might need to set up your pantry and refrigerator differently to have foods that might appeal to you if you have a low appetite, and then your regular foods that you might use day to day. So when people start out on the cancer journey, I think it's smart for them to look at their pantry, their freezer, refrigerator, and think about what am I going to use on the days where I can't stand up or don't want to stand up to cook a whole three-course meal. So get ready with those soups and gelatins and maybe ices, popsicles, and maybe have some beverages that are easy to drink. So that's one idea. 
You can use uh, pre-prepared products, or you can ask your friends maybe to contribute along the way as mm. you are on your journey. So it's nice to have some homemade yeah. <laughs> soups and uh, ideas like that, some frozen goodies. So those are things maybe you hadn't allowed yourself to have in a while, maybe popsicles or sherbet ice cream or some of those treats. But you might need some hearty soups or some nice desserts that have very low aroma. Foods that carry little to no aroma are more appetizing to people who are having a low appetite. So foods that might be cooler or room temperature might might work better. So thinking outside the box, you know, allowing yourself to kind of evaluate what you have now and see what you might need to add to your stock there at home. We have some neat ideas on our website as well how to how to go about that. Well, many caregivers um, always wonder what they can do, you know, for their loved one. And I think that's a great idea that they can actually prepare something so it will be easier and the patient doesn't have to prepare any foods, especially if the patient is fatigued. Yes, if you have a caregiver or friends, family members that maybe want to sign up to cook for you on certain days or perhaps cook ahead and freeze it, single-serve servings of foods, and put a date on the package, that is very helpful. I had a one patient whose family did that for him. He was having a stem cell transplant and had to be, you know, in house near the cancer center for several months. So his friends and family members got together and cooked and froze food for them, and then they didn't have to worry a lot about trying to go to the store, standing up to cook. Sometimes the aroma of cooking food is not appealing to people if they have smell or taste changes or challenges. So I think that's a great idea. You know, having some people donate a snack basket or, you know, things that might be single servings of snacks like, you know, crackers, uh, protein bars, um, dried fruit, trail mix. That's often a, a very nice gift to give people because you can just take a few snacks with you wherever you're going to sit. That way you won't forget to eat, keep your calories and protein coming in. We know that infection is of a concern for cancer patients, especially, you know, with the immune system being compromised. Are there any special food safety precautions for people getting treatment? Well, food safety is, I think, priority number one. We don't think about it a lot before cancer, but with cancer, the peelings and skin, a lot of our fruits and vegetables may carry bacteria. So number one is being sure to wash your fruits and vegetables well under running water so the bacteria will fall off of the fruits and vegetables. Even if you plan to peel that apple, go ahead and and wash it beforehand. So good washing technique is number one. Washing your own hands or if you're preparing food for someone, washing your hands for 15 or 20 seconds again under running water, warm with a little soap is helpful. Separating your food preparation areas. For instance, if you're chopping vegetables, that should be on a different chopping board than meat you might be slicing or preparing. Cooking meat and storing food at the right temperature is very important. 40 degrees is often thought about as the cutoff. You know, do your 40. You know, the uh, cold food should be 40 or below, and most foods, meats, and things should be 
heated to 140 or 165 degrees Fahrenheit, depending on the type of meat, if you're cooking it. So food safety is very important. Some foods you can't rinse and get all of the germs that might be on it, like vegetable sprouts. Berries are hard to wash, so some people just choose to avoid those altogether. It is also highly recommended that you use pasteurized milk, pasteurized fruit juices, because that helps keep those two items safe for the person. So pasteurization is important. And avoiding soft cheeses, which aren't processed at the right temperature. So hard cheeses tend to be A-OK, but not the soft cheeses when we're thinking about food safety. Then labeling your foods in the in the refrigerator and freezer is helpful so that you can throw things away after three or four days if you haven't eaten them. That's where caregivers can help, too, I think, you know, keeping your refrigerator nice and tidy and cleaning it up and first food in should be the first food that you eat. And I just want to talk about other types of issues that might come up, might arise from having a cancer diagnosis and and maybe some information you have to lessen the effects of something like possibly constipation or diarrhea from patients. I do hear a lot of different patients say that a lot of their medications either get them really constipated or uh, the other extreme. Since cancer treatments often kill the good cells along with the bad cells, that can really affect our digestive tract. It doesn't have the what we call peristalsis or regular movement of food through the digestive tract. Sometimes the food sits there or sometimes it rushes through, which is called diarrhea. If your food sits in your digestive tract, uh, we often call that constipation. Those are two frequently uh, experienced side effects of cancer caused by the killing of some of the good cells. Both diarrhea and constipation are barriers to healthy food intake. If your tummy's not happy, you know, your appetite is not happy either. (laughs) So um, constipation can be caused from medications, especially pain medications. Often as well, it can be caused by you have a whole different schedule now. Instead of waking up, going to work, going to school, now you're sitting more. You're getting infusions for maybe three to four hours or waiting, you know, having appointments for testing, imaging. So you are sedentary. So that sedentary lifestyle contributes to slowing of your digestive tract and constipation. Well, what helps constipation? Well, two major things from the food world help. One is extra fluid. Because fluid or hydration plus fiber from your food equals a soft form stool that will pass on a regular, hopefully, schedule for yourself. So making sure you're getting enough hydration and fluid is important. That can be water or fluid from any source, like, you know, milk, juice, soups, popsicles. And then soluble fiber, the type of fiber that makes the softer stool, and holds water is very helpful. So those are things like the inside of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, cereals like oats, oatmeal, and bran cereal. So fiber plus fluid plus a little activity, movement, if you're able to walk inside or if you're able and clear to walk outside, that those all help. Diarrhea 
can really cause you to lose a lot of fluid, as you imagine. With diarrhea, your food is not being absorbed. Your fluid is rushing the nutrients through your body. So you're not only losing fluid, you're losing your nutrients that you work so hard to prepare and eat. If you have diarrhea for more than one or two days, most cancer centers want you to contact your doctor immediately to get assistance. With diarrhea, often it's suggested that you might use more clear liquids, liquids that don't eat a lot break down to be absorbed, like clear juices, maybe some sodas, jello, plain jellos. And along with that, taking some replacement fluids, sometimes we call them electrolyte replacement beverages, after each episode of diarrhea. So that helps rehydrate you. Some popular rehydration fluids are Gatorade, Powerade, and different forms of Pedialyte that even works for adults, too. What about nausea? That's something that... We always hear about people saying, you know, I'm very nauseous and that, you know, what can I do to kind of appease that? We hear about ginger. We hear about all those different things. Is there any other food? Alicia tells me about ginger all the time. I tell her about ginger (laughs) all the time. Love ginger. I I can't take it. It's too potent. I don't know. I can't take it straight. It's really. There's so um, many benefits of ginger. I know, but like, how could it make it not as potent? I mean. Maybe. I have to dilute it a lot then. <laughs> but it is something that's healthy, right, Margaret? I mean, yes. Ginger's okay. healthy. Nausea is a common side effect of cancer and many cancer treatments. So nausea can really prevent you from even approaching food because sometimes the aroma of food or just the memory of food can even make it more extreme. One thing that I like to talk with caregivers and patients about is not becoming hungry. What does hunger have to do with nausea? Well, many people experience profound nausea when they are hungry. So trying to keep some snacks with you, some crackers, dry toast, dry cereal, and having that on your tummy so you can prevent nausea is very helpful. Number two, using the cool foods or foods at room temperature help a lot of people. That circumvents or helps you avoid the aroma. Using ginger in different forms, whether it's tea, ginger popsicles, ginger snaps, uh, ginger ale, ginger in cooking is very helpful. And coming up this fall, we'll have ginger gelatin for the holidays. It usually appears right before Thanksgiving. And that's a favorite to help some people. So small, frequent meals, not getting hungry is helpful. Using dry carbs to keep your tummy happy. And working with your healthcare team. Some people avoid taking medicine because they don't want to appear weak. If you have nausea, that's not a time to reject medicine. It's there for a purpose, and it will help you get through the nausea feelings of your treatments. So a strong person takes their medicine as prescribed. That's my suggestions. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. What about mouth dryness or mouth or throat pain or sores? Mouth issues are probably the number two reason that, that people don't eat. Some people want to eat, but it's so painful if their lips are cracked or they have tender places on their gums, mouth, or throat. 
using foods that are softer in texture are a big help. Sometimes using spoons or straws to avoid the areas that might be tender on your lips or mouth. Good dental care is very important in oral care. Sometimes the accumulation of little bits of foods can build up bacteria that can contribute to the problem. So rinsing your mouth before you eat helps prevent that as well as rinsing and brushing after you eat. Avoiding very spicy foods or foods at high temperatures uh, like fajitas or hot chili is often recommended because those hot temperatures or spiciness will often contribute to the pain. Your medical team also can help you with rinses, prescription medications, gels to help you maybe heal your mouth more quickly or evaluate to see if it's more than just a small soreness. It may be thrush or another problem that requires medical attention. You mentioned spicy foods, and I know that I can't take spicy foods. I think Alicia can, but I can't. I love spicy foods. She's <laughs> spicy. She's a spice girl. <laughs> but for people who tend to lose their sense of taste, because there's a lot of medications that actually people report that they lose their sense of taste. Should people have something that's a little bit spicier to actually be able to taste what they're eating? Changes in taste can be a, a fun area to work with people on. Many people say, I can't taste what I'm eating, so I'm not going to eat. Or it doesn't taste like it used to taste to me, so I'm not going to eat that food. So there are several strategies you can work on. If people have decreased taste sensation, you can add extra flavors to to your foods. For instance, you can add marinades, sauces, a little spice, start slowly, and then build up to the threshold that you might be able to taste. If your food doesn't have a good taste, say it, some metallic taste, that's also a side effect of some medications. Try not to use any metal in your food service or your food preparation. For instance, have plasticware at the table. Have your food cooked in glassware instead of a pan. That helps some people as well. Other people like a citrus flavor, so squeezing lime, lemon, or a little Orange section on your food helps that citrus juice to really pick up the flavor as well. So even though the food may not taste like you're accustomed to it tasting, you still need that good nutrition from the food. So experiment a little bit and see if you can find some flavors that really help you recognize what the food is again. And you mentioned dental care, which is a very important part of cancer care. Uh, problems with teeth, gums, or mouth can interfere with eating well, and poor nutrition can then lead to dental problems. So for our listeners, I actually want to encourage them to visit www.lls.org forward slash booklets, where we have a facts sheet that talks about the dental and oral complications of cancer treatment. And it also touches upon certain nutritional aspects as well as, you know, who to kind of go to to ask for tips on how to keep your teeth and mouth clean during this time. I think it's one of the things you want to do before you start your treatments. Many oncologists that we work with recommend that you have a good dental checkup before you do start treatments. So any teeth or gums that 
need treatment that can be taken care of before your radiation or chemotherapy, for example, may start. Good dental health helps bridge to good nutritional health. Now, is there anything for nutrition after your treatment ends? A lot of people have active treatment, meaning that they're taking some kind of medications or having certain procedures. But after these procedures, after these medications, uh, if somebody is in remission and they are being monitored, should they change their diet? Well, when folks have completed their active treatment, I like to talk to them about heart-healthy or wellness nutrition, which is maybe different than the nutrition they experience during active treatment. During active treatment, I wouldn't recommend to someone to be so restrictive in their food habits because they may not be able to eat a variety of foods. When your treatments are completed, that's the time to really get back to wellness. Get to a healthy weight. Become active. We know diet and physical activity are one of the top two lifestyle activities to recommend for future cancer prevention. Learning to eat a variety of foods in different forms again, especially fresh vegetables and fruits. Sometimes during treatment, people aren't able to eat raw fruits and vegetables. They don't agree with them or they cause discomfort. So this might be a great time to get back to those really nutrient-dense foods. And looking at their overall health, where they are on their health continuum, are you going to go through a growth spurt if you're a young person? Or are you an adult entering entering the time where your bone density is important? So adding back maybe dairy products and calories that you need to balance out your weight are important. So I think survivorship is a great time after active treatment to really get on the wellness bandwagon again and look at your overall nutritional well-being. And do you have any good recipes that we should try? (laughs) (laughs) Recipes make the world go round. In the autumn when it's getting a little bit cooler outside, I like to use suits with lots of vegetables. Maybe experiment with different kinds of grains like quinoa that is high protein and get into some of the autumn vegetables. We had a big garden this year, so we have several types of squash that we can roast and make different kinds of fun breads like, you know, oatmeal bread, zucchini bread with extra goodies added in. Also, if you like teas, there's lots of fun <laughs> beverages, ginger tea, Ooh. <laughs> lots of cinnamon cranberry teas. That sounds and, better. Yeah. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> Nothing better than to have a cup of tea and maybe a whole grain muffin to go with that for breakfast. When someone is looking to prepare the ingredients for a recipe or one of the recipes you mentioned, the topic of organic versus non-organic always comes up. So is that something that you advise cancer patients to do, shop organically, or does that not necessarily impact someone along their cancer journey? Well, organic food selections is very, I think, individual to people. Organic foods do cost more than the average foods. They are not known to be any superior in nutrition value than other foods. I like people, if they can, to buy foods that are raised 
close to their home. I think that's more important for freshness and foods that are raised on smaller farms often have less pesticides on them. So I like to talk more about, you know, where is your food coming from? Now, if people do want to buy food organically, that's fine. There is a list that's published by the World Cancer Research Fund called the Dirty Dozen. And those are those fruits and vegetables on the dirty dozen list are those that tend to have the higher levels of pesticides. So if you do want to shop organically, I think those would be a great use of your food dollar. And then your other fruits and vegetables you could buy in the traditional manner. And for anyone listening who also wants to see some recipes that we have posted on our website, I would encourage you guys to also visit our Pinterest page, which can be found in the description of this episode that shows food safety tips as well as recipes for those considering new ideas for their nutrition. Margaret, before we close up, is there anything else that you want to mention that you think patients or caregivers would be interested in? Well, nutrition is one of your major therapies during your cancer journey. Keep nutrition and and variety in your food choices as one of your major priorities. Don't forget to ask for help or assistance. You're very busy during active treatment. You have a lot of appointments and you're using probably a lot of medications. So you may experience more fatigue than you typically do. So be prepared. Get your pantry and refrigerator full of healthy foods and ask for help because many people want to do something for you, but they may not know just what to do. But nutrition is your number one job while you're on your cancer journey. Thank you, Margaret, for joining us today. For anyone who would like to request a free nutrition consult, please visit www.lls.org forward slash nutrition. On that same page, you'll see other information about healthy eating and dental hygiene. You can also request a consult by calling an information specialist at 1-800-955-4572, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.